0: I'm sure that all of us have been in situations where we have been caught perhaps doing something that we should not have done and have made an excuse. Or perhaps uh, you've heard someone, you knew someone like me who got caught doing something they shouldn't do and made excuses about why that they did it. You, you, you know, you don't, you don't understand my situation. Uh, th- this is different. This is not like other people. Um, In thinking about that, I I, I looked up some interesting things that people say about uh, automobile accidents and claims that they make when they file their, their insurance. For instance, an invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house. And collided with a tree that I don't have. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve several times before I hit him. That's a favorite. And this one, I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. Well, no wonder after 40 years, who wouldn't? We all, we all find ourselves in situations where we, we begin to make excuses, and maybe maybe the person involved really, really was innocent, because uh, the motive for whatever is done must be taken into account. That's the one one reason that our judicial system deals with uh, motives and circumstances in criminal cases. There are, a number of ways that you can be charged with taking someone's life for instance that range from first degree murder to uh, you know involuntary manslaughter whatever but generally the excuses that people make are exactly that excuses and they need to be seen for what they really are this is particularly true in our relationship to god god accuses us of suppressing the truth about uh, himself and of violating his moral law even while we pass judgment on others for doing the same things. But as soon as we hear those truths we begin to make excuses. We claim that we did not know what was required of us uh, or that we did not actually do what we are accused of Doing, Or that our motive was really pure. Uh, it's just that people can't see our motive. And whenever we find ourselves doing this, we need to rediscover the principles of God's just judgment that Romans 2 explains. One important principle of God's judgment, of course, is in verse 2. For it says that it is according to truth. And on the basis of that principle, we find ourselves to be guilty. For God is a God of truth and declares that we ourselves do what we, define, we find deserving of blame in others. We, we attack people for lying and we lie. We uh, do various things that we criticize others for. Another principle of God's judgment Is that it is according to deeds, verse 6, or according to works. We cannot plead extenuating circumstances because it's what we do that counts. And that principle is unfolded and expanded in verses 6 through 11, and then again, more so in verses 12 through 15. In this passage, Paul introduces a theological concept known as soul competency. That is, people will be, healed, be held individually accountable to God. You, you will not stand before God and plead, well, I came from a good family, or I was a member of North Athens Baptist Church, or I was an American, you know, in a Christian nation. Uh, none of that will work because God judges each person individually. Each person must stand before God and give an account of what they have done. And our ethnicity, our religious heritage, or nothing else will avail as an excuse when we stand before God. In these verses that I've read this morning, we are presented with two motives for our deeds, for our works. Those who are seeking the glory of God, which is what we are created for. Remember the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then those who are seeking their own glory. Remember Jesus accused the Jews of that. John chapter 5 he said you're not seeking, you're seeking the glory of man he said not the glory that comes from God. Uh, So there are those who are doing good. There are two paths. There's one on the path of doing good and the other on the path of selfish ambition. There's one obedient to righteousness and another disobedient. The first path leads to eternal life. Uh, and I said uh, when I did the over among uh, theologians and Bible scholars as to exactly what Paul is presenting here. And they're mainly mainly uh, two options, I think. Uh, One is that Paul is speaking of a hypothetical man who by perfectly doing the things mentioned would receive eternal life. In other words, here is what God requires. And if you can do that, you will have immortality. You will have eternal life. Of course, no one can do that. And that's obvious. And the other is that, that Paul is describing a Christian, one who is justified by faith alone, and that results in a perseverance of obedience. In other words, one whose life has been changed, one who has become a new creation in Christ, now walks in the path of righteousness. Not perfectly, of course, but his his attitude is that of hating sin and loving God, of desiring holiness. Uh, and and he exhibits a persevering fruitfulness. Uh, he walks in the path of righteousness, uh, and or seeks to walk in it all of the time. I, I, I guess I lean toward the second one of these two, perhaps. Although I, I don't think it's terribly important. I think um, I think it's important to remember what Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones says in his commentary uh, on the, the book of Romans about this, he says that we must keep in mind always that what Paul is doing in chapter 2 is not teaching about justification by faith alone. He's going to get to that. In chapters 3 and 4, that's going to come. But what he is doing here is laying out the principle that everyone is deserving of God's wrath. Everyone is deserving of of God's judgment, and, and and keep that foremost in your mind. That and Paul certainly is not saying here that a person can be justified by their good works. That that would contradict everything else he says in the book. Uh, some people have looked at this and said, "Oh, there it is, just plain as day." Paul says you can be justified by your works if you do these things. No, he is not. That. Cannot be true. He, Paul would be a, an intellectual uh, dummy, for back of, lack of a better word, to argue one thing all through the book and then another here. Remember that more, more important than anything else in your Bible study is not whether or not you know Greek and Hebrew, that's good, that's important, but context. Always look at the context. Where is this verse in the context of the chapter? Where is this verse in the context of the section of the book? Where is this verse, what does it say in the context of the whole book? And then in the context of the whole Bible. Context is extremely important. And the context here is that God, or that Paul is laying out the truth that he will come to in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, regardless of which option we take, we know based on Romans 3 and other places, many other places, that no one can be justified by works. But we also know that we have a faith that works. Think of it this way if you take the option that this is a justified Christian, uh, then Paul is saying the same thing that James says. James does not contradict Paul. James is simply saying that men will know that you are justified by the works that you do. And he cites Abraham as an example. He took Isaac to Moriah and he obeyed God. But Abraham had been justified by faith years before. The the incident that, that James cites is in Genesis twenty two, and Abraham had been justified by faith back in chapter 15. Many, many years before. So think of Paul here going along the same line of James. That those who are justified do good works. And they persevere in them. They continue to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. So he's talking of God's wrath. He's talking of God's judgment. Faith in Jesus Christ, he says is proven by a life of perseverance in good works. The same as, as James says. So, let's take these, these two paths that Paul lays out here, and we'll kind of put them together. The first is uh, what we might call the way of the saints, or the way of believers. And that is found in chapter or verse 7 and verse 10. The path of the person Who does good. In our text, Paul speaks of these in two places. So put them together. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he, that is God, will give eternal life. There will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. So there are two things here that such a person is described as doing. He or she does good, and they persist in doing good. And there are three things that are highlighted as to their essential motivation glory, honor, and immortality. In other words, in in other of Paul's writings, these terms are used to speak of the Christian's ultimate expectation. Glory refers to the transformation of the believer to the image of God's Son. Uh, by which the glory of God will be reflected in that person. Honor refers to God's approval of believers uh, as contrasted with the dishonor and the scorn accorded to them by the world. And immortality, of course, refers to the hope of resurrection that we will one day be raised and given a body like the body of Jesus and we will be with Him forever. Likewise, there are four things that God has said to dispense to such people as rewards for their aspirations. Eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. Eternal life, of course, refers to salvation uh, life in heaven with God rather than facing His condemnation. His wrath. Uh, glory and honor are two of the goals that these people are described as striving for. Uh, and the last term peace I think uh, seems to parallel with immortality. So he's not talking about the peace that we have with God when we become believers or even the peace of God that God gives us that passes all understanding rather He is referring to the peace of heaven. The peace that will come when we are delivered from sin and all of its manifestations and all of its conflicts. So, then the big question, has anyone ever chosen this path of their own volition? Uh, Has anyone by their own will ever walked this path? Does anyone... Of himself or herself actually do good and persist in it apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ? I hope by now you know the answer to that question is a resounding, emphatic no. No. Paul is condemning everyone here. Everyone is, is deserving of the wrath and the judgment of God. In chapter 1 he talks about those who are wildly immoral, bad sinners we might call them. Then beginning in chapter 2 he talks about, well those who are not wildly immoral, good sinners, but still sinners nonetheless. So there is none who chooses this life of obedience and of righteousness apart from the power of the gospel. Remember the theme of the book, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To those who believe. No one chooses to do good as God defines it. Paul is going to come in just a few verses here and say. There is none good. There is none that seeks after God. There is none that is righteous. Not even one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. Uh, This first path would be a wonderful option if anyone could actually walk along it. But none can and none do. Therefore when God judges judges men and women by an accurate and comprehensive uh, review of their works, of their deeds all will be condemned. For God shows no partiality. Remember the great white throne judgment. The books are said to be open and men are judged by their works. Their works. That's what men say they want to be judged by. Well, just judge judgment by what I've done. You know, okay, God will. And His judgment will be according to truth. And He will show no partiality. And it will be found that there is none good. That there is none righteous. That there is none who have sought for God. Apart from... The gospel of Jesus Christ. So, then in verses 8 and 9 we have the way of sinners, the path that all men naturally take. All men, apart from the power of the gospel, naturally take this second path. It is the way of destruction. And Paul speaks of it in verses 8 and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation And distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. So here is a revelation of sinfulness. There are three things the wicked are said to do, which reveal their sinfulness. First of all, they are self-seeking, which means contentious. Just the opposite uh, of of the first and the second greatest commandment, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, your strength, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But people on this path do not do that. They are self-seeking. They make themselves like Satan who said, I will be like the Most High. And secondly, they do not obey the truth. They reject the truth. Uh, In the context here again, this refers back to what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, they reject the truth of God that is revealed in nature, and they refuse to acknowledge His person and His power from what they see revealed in the world around them. And thirdly, such a person obeys unrighteousness or does evil, like the exposition we looked at in Romans: 129 through31. Uh, so what are the result of these choices? That men make. And if there's no intervention by God. Then what's the result of the choices that are made by all human beings? Four items. Wrath and fury. Tribulation and distress. The first two closely parallel one another. There is a relationship between the first pair and the second. Wrath and fury both concern God's fierce and absolute opposition to evil. God is opposed to everything that is evil. Remember, God does not grade on the curve. We, we, like to, we like to compare ourselves with each other, you know, with other people. You know, well, I might not be the best person to ever come down a pike, but I'm not like Adolf Hitler, you know. Well, congratulations, that's a wonderful thing. But God doesn't grade that way. If you want to make a comparison, you must make a comparison with Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not the best person in the world, but wow, I'm far short of Jesus Christ. You see, that's that's how God grades, and God is opposed to all evil, all evil. If you could live a perfect life, but only have... One minute out of it that you did not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that is evil. God is opposed to that, and He must punish that. And His wrath must come upon you as a result. Tribulation and distress refers to the effect of God's resulting judgment upon evildoers. These words are frequently used of the sufferings of the wicked In the life to come, Isaiah eight, Zephaniah chapter one. This is what awaits the ungodly, Uh, and why even those who think they are better than others who don't that they don't need the gospel. People who think, well, you know, I'm not as bad as some people. You know, I'm not perfect. You know, you hear that all the time. You know, well, I'm not perfect. My children used to say that to me. I didn't need their testimony, you know, but anyway, you know, well, Dad, you know, I'm not perfect, son. I never thought you were. You know, I've always, since the day you were born, know that you were a totally depraved wretch, just like your father. So that wasn't an issue. So, again, we're not perfect. That's the problem. That's the problem. Because it takes absolute perfection to enter into God's heaven because he is opposed to all evil. Well, if it takes absolute perfection, how will we get there? Only by a borrowed righteousness. Only by a righteousness that is not initially ours, but is imputed to us by faith alone. That righteousness of Jesus Christ that he acquired for all those who will believe. So. Two ways in Scripture. Some people find this section of Romans to be very difficult. I said they think that it is teaching salvation by good works. If you do good and persist in it, you'll be saved. If you do evil, you'll be lost. That is not what these verses are saying. No one is saved other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless... I think it is significant that the Apostle does speak of two paths. And he does not encourage us that a person will reach the goal of eternal life without actually being on the path of righteousness. What is the direction of your life? I'm not asking if you are without sin. Not at all. What is the general direction of your life? Are you... Are you seeking for righteousness? Does your sin grieve you? Do you find yourself grieved over and over by sin? That is what Paul is talking about. That's the same thing that the Bible, uh, the same message of Psalm 1, where the psalmist talks about the righteous man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the way of sinners. Nor sit in the seat of mockers. But rather he delights in the law of the Lord. He speaks of the wicked man that the chaff blows away. This has present implications. But there are eternal implications as well. Uh, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The psalmist said the wicked will perish. Matthew chapter 19 records that Jesus replied in a similar fashion to the young man who asked him, What good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus might have said, Well, believe on me. You know, make your profession of faith. Rather, he said to him, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man proving his absolute complete total depravity looked at God himself and said, I've done it all. All of these I've done from my youth up. Just like when my father used to look at me and say, Son, did you do this? And I would just lie through my teeth. Of course not, Father. I would never do such a thing. So the young man does that. So Jesus instead of telling him to have faith in himself, are pointing out that he really had kept these commandments like he thought he had, gave him a test. Okay. He said, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions. Give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And the man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions, proving that he was covetous, Proving that he did not love God above all others. Proving that his stuff was more important to him than eternal life. The introduction to the parable of the Good Samaritan along these same lines. You remember an expert on the law tried to test Jesus by asking him the same question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told the parable of the Samaritan. It's always interesting to me the Bible doesn't use the word good, we do. But he told the parable of the Samaritan, of a man who helped someone who was not like him. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Remember Samaria was the northern kingdom. When the when the kingdom split, when Rehoboam became king after Solomon then the northern kingdom were the, the ten tribes that, that followed Jeroboam, set up two golden calves that the people worshipped. And over the years, the, the hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews was intense. Like some of the racial hatred that we have experienced in America. And we are paying the price for it. Having sown to the wind, we are reaping the whirlwind. But, Jesus gave the story of the Samaritans. Who helped a person. And then he said, Who's the neighbor? You're to love your neighbor as yourself. So who is that neighbor? Uh, I, I don't want any of you to think that I'm substituting good works for faith as a means of salvation. But I am saying this if you are saved, good works must follow. Absolutely necessary. Walking in the way of righteousness must follow. Persevering in that way must be a mark of your life. Good works inevitably follow real faith. Cannot be substituted for real faith. But it has to follow it. Uh, if good works are looked to as the grounds of salvation, and that's another gospel. But good works are a result of real salvation. They are not the root of salvation, but they are the fruit. Uh, Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But we cannot mock God. We cannot walk in a way of unrighteousness and evil, contentiousness and self-seeking, And say that we have truly been born again. No one can say that they have been saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And then walk the same path that they walked before. They have to walk in a different way. Those who are saved by God's grace are placed on a path of righteousness. And they persevere in that path all of their lives. Imperfectly to be sure. But yet, our righteousness must exceed that righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, or else we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the question is, which path are you on? What is the direction of your life? Are you seeking for glory and honor and immortality? Are those the things that you are striving for Do you hate sin? Do you find yourself hating sin more and more? As I get older, to tell you the truth, the one thing that appeals to me about heaven above everything else is not streets of gold, or not even being reunited with loved ones, is that there will be no sin. I get so tired of sin. I'm talking about my own here I just get so weary of sin of fighting it all the time and yet fight we must we must persevere it is one of the marks of true believers that they persevere that they continue in the faith if, if you find that you are not on that path then turn around what the Bible calls repent over the course of my ministry I've known numbers of men and women who were members of the church who suddenly discovered one day that they were members of the church but they were not believers that they did not hate sin as the Bible commanded and that they did not find themselves seeking after righteousness as the Bible commanded and those people turned around and got off the path that they were on onto the path of righteousness and you got to admit you're on the wrong path before you're ever going to change uh, the path of self will always takes you further and further away from God commit yourself to Jesus Christ and resolve to follow him and obey his commandments in the Bible repentance and faith always go together they are so closely tied together that you can't really say which one comes first and which comes second. They, they happen together. In the second that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will find yourself on the right road. You don't have to seek it. Because the first step that can be taken on the right road is repenting of your sin and putting your faith and your trust In Jesus Christ. And then you'll find yourself in that great struggle against sin, longing for righteousness and hating sin. The light breaks through, and you are seeking for glory and honor, immortality, and eternal life as your goal. Let's pray together. Our Father,